I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, we were talking about this before the recording started, but this is this episode has been a long time coming. Uh, we are joined by our friend Aaron Patterson, who we met uh, five ish years ago uh, at a live recording, a live show that we did in Toronto. And Aaron, um, uh, I remember back then when we met you, we had a conversation about how you had found out that you are a carrier of the Huntington's disease gene. I guess that's how you would phrase it. Okay, right. Um, You know what's so funny, Aaron, is like I've, so I I read your your first book, and when I saw that your name was in the calendar booked for this recording, I thought in my mind that you had already been on the podcast before because like (laughs) I'm kind of familiar with your story, you know, like I've, like like Jared was saying, this Mm -hmm. has been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. It just feels you feel so familiar to me that I feel like we've already sat down and done this before. So I'm excited to officially really, really. Brian's really just saying that he feels like he doesn't need to pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) I know it all. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wake me up when this is over. um, (laughs) So to, to get into it, um, Aaron, and, and just, just for, you know, for the, for the proper introduction here, um, Aaron, you are a, you're an author. Brian just mentioned you, you had a book, um, uh, published one of your books uh, that Brian was referring to. You're a public speaker. Um, and, and again, you've tested positive for the Huntington's disease gene at the age of 32. And we've, um, for people who aren't familiar with Huntington's, we will be doing a, bare, a you know, a, a, an extensive deep dive into it today. But the one thing that I, that I, I couldn't help but think about before coming into the recording today was just how heavy It, I, I'm, I'm anticipating this conversation to be because of the nature of Huntington's disease. And I'm only saying that from a personal perspective, because when I think of Huntington's, my mind goes down that road the same way that my mind goes down that road. When I think about things like ALS, like I don't have, like what I, I mean, I fucking live with CF. When I think about CF, I don't think about cystic fibrosis in this like in this sort of like gloom and doom, really heavy, fucking terrifying sort of nature. Um, but when I think of Huntington's disease, I do. And, and I, 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 think, I think I have those thoughts and feelings for good reason. But to help us put that into perspective, um, please, in your own words, give us a little rundown on what is Huntington's disease and 
what does it mean to be tested positive for the gene that comes with Huntington's disease? Um, so a lot of people describe Huntington's disease as a mix of ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. So it affects you in three different areas. It affects your mind, it affects your mood, and it affects your motor abilities. But that really doesn't mean much to people. And when I was first diagnosed as gene positive, I, I couldn't really grasp, oh, well, what does that mean for my future? Because I hadn't met anybody who had Huntington's disease at that point, because mm. it was a secret in my family. And my grandmother died when I was 12 years old. And I didn't even know at the time that that's what she had passed away from. So my dad is in the later stage of Huntington's disease now. And what that really means for him is he has trouble walking. He has chorea, which is involuntary leg movements. Mm. So it affects his walking, but it also affects him just doing normal things, sitting still, eating, you know, he has these sporadic movements where he has like this pattern where he has to stand up and then sit down while he's eating his meal. He, mm. It's almost like he can't control it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's uncomfortable for him or not, because he never really complains about it. Mm. But he he's at the point now where he doesn't really make eye contact with people anymore. And he has trouble speaking. So he's all in there and he's still able to make decisions for himself. And he still understands me when I'm talking to him, but he can't get the words out. So right. if I get a three word sentence out of him, that's a lot. And that's a good conversation. If I get five sentences that are three words in one phone call, that's a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually kind of sometimes feel upset because it makes me miss my old dad yeah. who, who that I could speak, speak to. So it's more that uh, I have to ask him one question at a time. I speak slower. I wait, uh, you know, a full 20 to 30 seconds for that answer to come out. Sometimes it'll be once the conversation is moved on and then the answer comes out. Uh, so there's just a lot of patience in waiting. Um, mm -hmm. Really, yeah. that's, that's, what it, that's what it is for him. Everybody is a little bit different. And uh, what it means to be gene positive is mm. that I have inherited the disease from my dad and um, I will get the disease one day. I just don't know when the symptoms are going to occur. Right. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's the part that that's the part that is so, so um, equally fascinating as it is scary. Um, mm. yeah, because I, I, I don't think I mean, I could be wrong here, but I'm as far as I'm aware Huntington's is the only disease that I know that you, like if you test positive for the disease, 100% you are going to get it. Hmm. Um, but, and, and, you know, and it the, only has to be a, a one copy of the, of the gene instead, sure, of, didn't instead he, of having, didn't even know that part of it. But yeah. the thing that, that, the thing that I think sets it up and maybe that sets it apart too, but the other thing that sets it apart from anything else that I can think of is like, Unlike cystic fibrosis, I have a genetic mutation. I was born. I have the disease once I once I came out of the womb. I had it. You know, mm -hmm. and for you, you t right now in the moment don't have the disease, but you are guaranteed to get it if you live long enough. And I don't think there's any other kind of genetic illness that manifests that way. Is there? I don't, like, I don't know. It's just it's like, like you've got you've got the gene. You're gonna get it. You just. You just gotta wait until you're old enough yeah. to get it. Huntington's is certainly the only one that I've heard of. Aaron, yeah. is there is there any other that is a, that acts similarly to Huntington's in that way? I I haven't heard of any myself, but I think that's like the most important point to make uh, yeah. is that it is if you live long enough, it's 100% guaranteed that you're mm. going to get it, and yeah. that's a one of the major sticking points that people don't understand. 
they, they think, oh yeah, well, maybe you'll get it. It's like, no, I know for sure I'm going to get it. Um, and it's just like something that people kind of don't even want to accept the knowledge of. Yeah. Mm. Oddly enough, um, I, uh, in my, in the research that I'm doing for our, our cystic fibrosis podcast, um, I, the, one of the guys, one of the two main characters that discovered the cystic fibrosis gene, the CFTR gene in mm-hmm. uh, 1989, he, Francis Collins, went on to be the director of the NIH in the U.S. under three different presidents, also discovered or isolated the Huntington's the gene as right. well. NIH stands for Non-Intelligent Humans? That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Not right. the National Institute of Health. <laughs> yeah. uh, Aaron, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask, so... So when you talk about like this, this, like the, the hardest part about it is that like, there's this guarantee that if you live long enough, you'll get it. I remember you were talking, talked about this a bit in your, your first book, the the feeling of like sort of dismissiveness from, you know, friends and families who are, who are like, who are sort of saying to you, you know, like, oh, well, you don't know for sure. Or, or like, you know, maybe there will be a treatment or, or cure by then. You never really know. And and how that made you or makes you feel. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I would say the worst thing I ever heard from people, and it happened on more than one occasion, is, well, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow and die, so why are you worried about it? Yeah. And just the, all the people who dismissed it made me um, doubt my own feelings and that I was making a big deal out of nothing. And what I hadn't realized at the time is I was grieving the future that I thought I had. And I, I didn't understand that because that's kind of a weird concept to get. Um, mm. So it just eventually made me start clamming up and not talking about it. Mm. And it got to the point that when my dad started <laughs> having more noticeable symptoms, I thought that I must be imagining it, you know, because nobody in the family was talking about his symptoms starting. Wow. And if if I did try to bring it up sometimes, um, you know, they, they'd they want to move on to another subject and not discuss it. So it really made me doubt myself as a person and what I was feeling and what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting, it's an, it's a very interesting uh, dismissal because like, it's not that, not that hard to kind of flip that around on somebody with a, with a, with like a myriad of different illnesses. I mean, the, the, and the most probably blatant and obvious one is cancer. Like if you, mm. if you were to tell somebody you are definitely going to get cancer. You're definitely going to get it, hundred percent. How are you going to feel about that? Like, you're not. It's not just going to be business as usual. Like, mm. it just is not. You're going to have, um, you know, probably an identity crisis. You know, probably ha- have to try and you know figure out like what does. Li- you're you're going to go through a whole wave of emotions and feelings that are going to make you question. You know, what am I doing with my what? Yeah. What am I doing with my life? What am I doing? Am I am I am I leaving each day to the fullest? Am I like spending time with the right people? Am I in the job that I want, like you're going to, you're going to go through a, a pretty intense process if you knew that that was going to happen. And that seems quite obvious to me. So it is really interesting that, mm. that, that you come up against this, um, this sort of like dismissal. Um, and on top of people. all that, on top of all that to, to add to the mix, being a caregiver for someone <laughs> who's currently dying from Huntington's yeah, mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that's the, like, that's, that right there, that exact piece is the thing that made that that flooded me with those thoughts earlier today of like, wow, this is this is so heavy. That's because, truly because the like, part I, that's the hardest for me. I, I, is, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. 
Go, yeah, please just, go ahead. Like, you know, my, my dad was in hospital last year and I was by his bedside. It was still the end of COVID. So nobody else could go in and I was doing everything for him. And, uh, it was very difficult to witness. It was very difficult to go there every day. He lived out of town, so I couldn't even come home to my family for support. Mm. Um, so, so that was really hard. And that's one of the things that most people don't understand. Uh, and, and they always say, oh, you know, it manifests differently in everybody. And it's like, yeah, but there's certain things that are going to be the same. It's not going to no. manifest in a way that's like, oh, you know what? It, this it, this panned out to be pretty fucking fun. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, so, oh, okay, sure. It's going to manifest differently, but it's just, it's not going to manifest in any way like. outside of or that anybody just, likes. just suckiness. Yeah, just yeah, shit. It's going like, to be crappy just, no matter It's going to be fucking yeah. shit no matter yeah. what. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Aaron, what that feeling it, it is like of like looking at your dad. Do you look at your dad and look and think like, oh, wow, this is... You know, do you see yourself in, in that experience? Every yeah. single time. And yeah. sometimes I can't look at him. You know, sometimes if we're eating dinner together, if I go up to visit him, then I sit beside him and I don't watch him eat because it's it's just too hard for me to watch mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, yeah. How in, do in you terms handle- of the In terms of the, like, like when, you know, the range of, like, when symptoms can, can mm-hmm. start, like, what yeah. what does that look like? So usually uh, people start to get symptoms in their 30s and 40s, and they live with it for 10 to 20 years. In my family, it seems to be late onset. My grandmother passed away in her early 70s, and my dad didn't start having the beginnings of Huntington's until he was in his 50s. And um, he's turning 80 this year, and he's still pretty independent. So that's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. How do do you... um... So like for, I guess for, for, for context, like I just did a gene, I just did a 23 me thing, like not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing that I was like really curious about specifically was the APOE4 allele, which is associated, associated with Alzheimer's disease. It's not deterministic. doesn't mean, you know, if you've got one copy, it increases your chances, you know, X amount. And if you've got two copies, you know, an extra amount. Um, but it's not deterministic and there are, and there are things that you can do lifestyle wise that, you know, can, you know, potentially elite, uh, uh, help, um, uh, um, degrade that risk. Um, but with something like Huntington's being deterministic, it's, 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 it's a, it's a one or a zero, it's black and white. Um, how do you manage, how does your your mental state and your mental health ebb and flow with the knowing of, of what is down the road for you. Maybe the time is blurry and maybe the symptoms and the severity of them are a little bit blurry, but it's there. How do you, how do how does, how do you deal with that? I would say in the beginning, uh, I couldn't deal with it. And uh, when I was first diagnosed, I, I coped by just keeping extremely busy all of the time mm. and not having a single moment by myself. Cause if there was ever a moment that I was by myself, my main, my mind would just start to swirl. And I'd say, I'm going to get HD. I'm going to turn into my grandmother. Mm. I, I, I grew up thinking my grandmother was mean. So that's the only image I had of somebody with HD at the time. I'm going yeah. to turn into my green mean grandmother. And I would say it, it took about 10 years to finally come to terms with my diagnosis. And that was a really long time. And it's kind of scary to say it took 10 years because that's not very inspiring for other people. 
but it really, it came out of the blue, right? I didn't even know it was in my family, whereas right. other people grow up with it. They have time, they adjust as they go along. Right. I would say nowadays, uh, just really getting more involved in the HD community and uh, doing things to help other people is one way that that works for me. But like on a daily basis, when I'm at home by myself working, uh, it's things like exercising and living in the moment or practicing meditation. And I'm just talking easy meditations that are just a 10 minute meditation a day that I don't even do every day or um, just focusing on my family and doing things with my family mm -hmm. and just trying not to let things spiral. You know, a lot of times when it happens, when my mind starts to spiral is before I'm about to go to sleep at night. And I just literally say, no, you're just tired. Mm -hmm. Just don't think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you now it kind of going, um, going back to the, the, what I mentioned earlier, about about, um, about Alzheimer's, this is actually still a good, this is in a book. I'm in a book I'm reading of, of, who, of, of, of which the author will not be named. Um, Peter Atia. Um, <laughs> I, he, he actually says in the book, like this is actually still very controversial. He says he doesn't know, he doesn't exactly know why, because it seems like there's some pretty concrete evidence for it in relation to Alzheimer's disease and some other neurodegenerative diseases where there, you know, there are, there, there are some pretty hard links between, you know, things like the way they eat and the way they exercise and lifestyle stuff that isn't going to necessarily isn't going to stop you from getting Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. But if you do happen to get it at some point in your life, you've, you have like built up a certain degree of armor that allows you to be a little bit more protected from the symptoms for a longer period of time. So, so that it's not as, so that it's not, a, it can be maybe less severe or um, can onset later or something like that. Um, in your in your understanding of Huntington's disease, is there any conversation of that of like building building anything to, that is protective against Huntington's disease? Is there anything that anybody has ever said that you can do in preparation for what you what you know is coming in some way down the line? I mean, it's just norm the normal life advice that everybody should follow, right? Eat healthy, yeah. don't drink, don't smoke get a lot of exercise. Those are the things that people are talking about. I recently learned a little bit more about, you know, there's a lot of swallowing issues with people with Huntington's disease. So I met some person who's just like uh, learning to practice their swallowing um, and just build those habits a little bit better so that when their swallowing does get worse, it's a little bit stronger, but uh, I haven't huh. heard of anything really beyond that. And is that like, is that a um, like tried tested and true method of, uh, or, or is that just them going, you know what? Like, I know my swallowing is going to like shit the bed at some point. So I'm going to, I'm just going to like tr try to train the brain in a way that, um, you know, in a way that I most certainly wouldn't be thinking about. I'm not, I'm not sitting here going, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta really mindfully practice my chewing because one day yeah. I'm not going to be able to chew my food ever again. Tiller so. and I practice swallowing. <laughs> oh, 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 look at that. That's a personal thing. Hey, that is that inappropriate. <laughs> um, but, you, but, when, but it is but like, is, it, like, is that, is that a, is that a thing that a, like that a physician might say, Hey, you want, might want to try this. Or is it a thing that, you know, this person is going right. Fucking, I'm going to throw this at the wall and, and who knows, maybe this will be helpful for me in the future. This was from a speech language pathologist. That oh, works okay. with people with Huntington's mm. disease. Okay, mm. okay. Yeah. Trust in source. general, most most doctors gen don't know much about Huntington's disease, right. um, unless mean, you're at a specialist clinic. This might sure. seem a little. This might seem a little unrelated, but like um, a friend of mine who just recently took up cycling, or not recently took up cycling, but like got got into riding, got into riding in a more like serious way. He goes out on a ride, 
And he goes, um, he, there, we, we go out with two groups, one fast group, one slower group. And he, he went with the slower group and he said, hey, I think I can go with the faster group because I, I kept up really well with the slower one. And he's not very confident with his bike handling. And so I said, you know what? Stick with the slower group for a little while because if you go with the faster group and you end up being like totally on the limit trying to keep up, like because in, in the sense like you're, gonna properly you're almost, properly you're almost going cross-eyed mm. but because you're exerting so much effort trying, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. trying to keep up that if your bike handling isn't dialed in already, if you don't have that second nature capacity to, form to, to, to like just second nature without thinking handle your bike in the yeah. correct way when you start to like when you start to see stars because you're so exhausted you know you're 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 liable you're liable to crash to crash and to cause other people to crash sure. so like building up that building up those skills in the background i think that applies like in a lot of different yeah. ways so that when you start to not be able to use those that functionality consciously the habit is so well formed yeah. underneath that it takes longer for it to break down. Yeah, it's like a it's a technique thing, right? Like, it, like if you're if you're pushing yourself to that pace anyway, you're it's a, even as you do progress and get stronger, get better, get more clear, your your technique's going to suffer because of it. Totally, you know. Yeah. And the so, more you fatigue, yeah, the more the um, technique. Love suffers. how you were able to somehow bring, somehow bring, bring a cycle. Just like my polar bear analogy from the other day. Um, <laughs> a little bit more relevant than, Aaron, than the polar bear. Aaron, analogy. I wanted to ask. I'm really curious about the um, the like the thought behind doing the genetic testing, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, obviously your dad has, uh, um, symptoms of the, of this. So actually that's not so obvious. So I want to ask the question first, like when did you decide that you were going to do genetic testing? And also what is that, um, conversation like within your family? Because I'm guessing there could be, um, not repercussions, but a, an impact on, the rest of your family members too? Sure. So nobody in my family knew I was going through testing. I did it secretly. Uh, the way it happened was my husband and I were really excited. We, we had decided we're ready to have kids. Uh, we went over for brunch one day. We're like, hey, you're probably going to be grandparents next year. We're, we're starting to try. And then a couple of days, like we, our news wasn't met with the excitement we thought it would be. <laughs> and right. a couple of days later, my parents were like, eh, maybe we should tell you about that thing that might run in our family that your grandmother might have died from and we think it skips a generation we're not sure or uh you know we don't even know if if you're at risk for it but uh it's Huntington's disease so that's what when when I found out when I was 31 Mm -hmm. and I was already in the process of trying to have a child Mm -hmm. so because it was presented to me at that time I my whole decision around testing hinged around uh, if I have this gene, maybe I shouldn't have a kid. Right. Um, so we didn't stop trying to have kids. And I went through the testing process. Uh, at that point in time, my dad didn't have symptoms. And the only thing we knew is my grandmother had it. We didn't know if my dad had it. Right. Okay. Um, so I went through the genetic testing process. And within eight months, I got my test results. And then it wasn't until the day I went in to get my test results and I found out I was gene positive. I thought, oh, crap that means my dad has it and I can't tell anybody. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, Holy you fuck. know, this, oh, oh, this is right. so wild. So it's only one copy. Can, yeah. can I, 
I, I, have, I have a number of questions here. Um, <laughs> so many questions. <clears throat> the first one being, when, when in retrospect, when you look back at that conversation. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. That you that phone call you got a couple of days after informing your parents that like, hey, you guys might be grandparents soon. And the information that you received from that phone call, do you think that they were being fully transparent and completely honest with you? Or do you, do you think that there was like, like a, a sort of base of fear there considering that like the conversation never really happened and they're realizing, fuck now, now we really got to tell her at least something, you know, like, because the way you phrased it was, they were like, we don't know if you will, if you'll get it. We don't even really know if you, if, if it's like, possible it might skip a generation like do you think though do you think they truly thought those things yep or do you think that they had the awareness that like no. this is how huntington's works no i don't think they knew anything about it wow. um, my grandmother caused a lot of problems when i was growing up at the end stages of the disease and i just remember my parents fighting about her a lot and mm. when she passed away that was before the gene was even discovered so oh, there wasn't any okay. way of knowing uh, like 100 percent at the time of her passing if it was uh. huntington's disease or not um, okay. So I, I felt like my parents were presenting me with the information that they did know. I didn't feel that they were holding anything back there. Sure. Um, and my dad said he would go through genetic testing so that I didn't have to. Uh, I don't know. I guess he thought it would be an emotional process. So he yeah. wanted to spare me that. But because I was already trying to have kids, I didn't I didn't want to wait around yeah. for him to go through testing. And I didn't feel like I should pressure him to rush into it. Cause it felt like a big decision for right. me to mm -hmm. make. So that's why I went and got tested not a single person in my family knew I have yeah. two brothers. They didn't know. Um, the only people knew were my husband and a, a handful of friends that I ran with. Okay. Mm. Now and is I, it a, is I, it a 25, is it a 25% yeah, chance? Like, yeah. If you could at that walk, point it, it was 25%. Okay. Can you, can you just, just for, just for context, cause the, I mean the genetic, the, the, the sort of passing on genes, is I, I think for a lot of people is kind of a confusing thing. I mean, mm -hmm. Christ, I've lived with CF my whole life and, and it, only recently in, in speaking about potentially having children, did I come to realize what, what the possibility of my potential child having CF would be if I, mm -hmm. if I tried to have a child with somebody who was not a carrier of the gene, you know, like, like, like I used to think, uh, well, if I have CF and I, I, I mate with someone who isn't a carrier, there's probably still a chance that the kid could have CF, but that's not the case. It's, it's actually a 0% chance that they'll <coughs> have CF, but a guaranteed percent chance that they'll be a carrier of the right. gene. So um, if you could just kind of walk us through how do the genetics and like the passing on of the Huntington's disease gene, what, like how does it work? What are the ratios? I mean, Taylor had mentioned, which I, again, I didn't know, that you only need one copy of the gene. So can you give us kind of like a high-level overview of sure. all the things that you might want to know about, about Huntington's disease and genetics? 
I'll try my best. That, 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 that you're aware of. That you are aware of. Speaking as an author who is not a geneticist. Okay, here we go. Let's say we knew that my dad had HD from the very beginning, right? If I had that knowledge that my had my dad had the gene. So it's an expanded gene. So there's a certain number of repeats in a gene that is normal. And there's a certain number that is a gray area. And then there's a number once you hit over, I think it's 40 or 42 repeats that means you you have the expanded gene that will cause Huntington's disease. So for my dad, each one of his kids has a 50-50 chance of inheriting the gene. Oh, wow. So each kid has a 50-50 chance. So wow. in my case, my dad passed the gene on to me, but there's two copies of a gene, my mom's and my dad. So Huntington's is called an autosomal dominant gene, which means that that bad gene is taking control. Okay. So that's okay. why that's what what Taylor was saying earlier. It's just you only have one. You don't need two copies of the gene. You, with right. Huntington's, you just have that one copy. And if you have that one cop one copy of the expanded gene, that's when you're guaranteed to get Huntington's if you live long enough. And you have two brothers and yourself, yes. correct? Yes. Now, after you know, after coming to find out that you have Huntington's, and after coming to find out that your father has Huntington's, have your brothers decided to? test for the gene or not? So one of my brothers went through testing because he was considering having kids um, and he tested gene negative and my other brother hasn't gone through testing at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so that leads me to my next question, which I would love to kind of dive into. But um, again, I feel like this is something that people, I, I feel like Huntington's really doesn't get enough spotlight. Um, I, there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that are just like, I have no, I don't fucking know. I've heard of it, but I've, I like, I don't know shit about it. So can you, can you walk us through the it's whole, exactly like that too. They got <laughs> fucking shit. I don't know. Shit about <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> um, can you walk us through, um, like when I, so, so the, the thing that I, one of the things I find super fascinating about Huntington's is the, because it's so fucking unique is the, the decision to test for the gene versus not. Mm -hmm. And, and for myself personally, if I was in a position where I found out, okay, my dad has, we just found out my dad has Huntington's. I would, the first fucking thing I would do is sign up to get tested for the gene. Personally for myself, that's how I would react. But I know that a lot of people in a similar position choose not to because they don't want to go through the hardship of having to come to that realization. Yeah. I think I'd be in the not camp. Sure. Right. So can you, I mean, maybe I've spoken to it, but it, unless it, it came to having kids, can you right? And the, the kid thing is a big part of it, but can you add, can you kind of add to that and elaborate? Like, what is the, what are your thoughts on like the, the, the ways that people try to manage emotionally manage the possibility of whether or not they have Huntington's and the choices to test versus not test. What are things that you've heard in the community of like reasoning behind, you know, doing one or the other? A lot of it comes down to how it was in their family. For, for me, it was a complete shock and it just came out of the blue and I was presented it in a way like that I should get testing. And I, I didn't really think, about the decision all that much. It was kind of like, oh yeah, that's the responsible thing to do. If I'm going to have kids, I should find out first if I'm going to pass this gene on to them. Um, other people have just grown up with Huntington's in their life and it's just the way their life is. Mm. Um, so 
the need to get testing doesn't necessarily feel urgent to them or it's not the right timing or, you know, you can't get tested when you're, you're a kid. Obviously, you have to wait until you're an adult and then you might be going through university and stuff like that. So it's not always the right timing. Um, how, how come you have to wait? How come you have to wait till you're an adult? Well, you can't get your kid tested for Huntington's. So if I had a kid that was at risk, I can't test them for Huntington's. They have how come? To, I'm how not, come? It, you're just not allowed. It's probably has you, to be it's, their it's decision. It's like an ethics thing? Like, like, yeah, like you can we, test we actually... it in utero. You could test your baby in utero if you're thinking, oh, if my baby has Huntington's, I uh, then I can have a, a termination. Uh, but or, once the baby is born, you, you're not allowed to get your kid because tested for it. Because they have to have the autonomy to say that they want to go through that process. Be, but, uh, but I guess they can't do that until they're an adult. Yeah. It might be that, that, that might be specific to Huntington's because of right. the what it means for the future, right? Because like means, yeah. like I mean, you can have your child tested genetically tested for cystic fibrosis if you were trying to get to the bottom of why my mm-hmm. kid isn't digesting his food or why my kid is you know um, mm. coughing and hacking at night all the time and their skin tastes salty. Like we think they have CF, so they will genetically test the child. But I guess that's. Well, if you're if you're showing symptoms of juvenile Huntington's, then yes, of course they would test you. Oh, yeah, right, okay. right. So there has, no be a, there has to be a a a a a cause like a reason to do the test, yeah. other than we're just going to see. Yeah, I mean, we're just curious. Yeah, right. I mean, philosophically, it's like, so It's very much. It's it's like it's it's like the uh, it's like the 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 philosophical sort of like thought experiment of like if someone could tell you when and where yeah. and how you're going to die, would you want to know? Yeah. And it's like, well, okay. So you're thinking, well, if I know, then I can avoid it. But you by can. its very nature, you can't because yeah. everything that you're doing is leading you to that place at that time in yeah. that scenario, which is going to, which is going to happen. Unless you had a genie and you wished for infinite wishes and one of your infinite one wishes, of your wishes was to change right, that time. Exactly. Date. I mean, <laughs> yeah. this is the only, this I mean, is that's the, a, we, we, we all know that. This anyway, is the only on. known loophole. <laughs> um, and so, and so when it comes to genetic testing, like, I, I mean, I guess both scenarios are true in the sense that it's like mm. knowing is one thing and not knowing is one thing, but like you're still going, you're still arriving at the same place ultimately. Um, um, to kind of reference that the genetic testing in, in this, this book, um, when it was talking to talking, speaking on Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative diseases, it was like, you know, the, 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 the advice that the advice that this doctor was giving was, you should want to know if you've got an increased risk so that you can mitigate it as best as possible. But in the case of Huntington's disease, there's not, there's not, really, a miti- there's not really a mitigation process. Mm. Yeah, and you, and you want to live your life. You don't want to feel like, oh, oh I can't eat that mm. yeah. chocolatey treat or have that drink because it might increase my risks of something coming. Right? Yeah. So, so, if you, so if you, in a world where you we're not going through the process of having children and you never end up having that conversation with your parents. Yeah. And then you ultimately do find out that your, you know, your dad starts um, exhibiting symptoms mm-hmm. is, is testing something that you think that you would have naturally come to no matter what? I think so. Because um, I kind of, I, I like to be in control, even though we, we don't really have that much control over our lives. I, I like to be able to prepare myself for my future um, yeah. and, and I'm doing that a lot now with my daughter and, and preparing her for, for my future with Huntington's disease. And that to me feels really empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could see why other people might just not want to think about it. Right. 
I see like I something a, a story that's been in the back of my mind since we started having this conversation is um and 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 which really breaks my heart around especially in the pre-genetics era where you know you couldn't you know there was no explanation for exactly what this was um and why exactly somebody was exhibiting these symptoms or knowing exactly what they were dealing with where we should just assume <clears> they were <throat> cursed I mean, one of my, one of my mom's, one of my mom's, uh, mom and dad's best friends at university, uh, was like, you know, a, a, a great football player played in the CFL, like incredibly intelligent, you know, went on to have like a, a, an excellent, you know, very successful, like business career after a playing career in the CFL. And, and then everything fell apart and he became an alcoholic and he became abusive with his family and he ended up being homeless and like his like really like like and and nobody knew why and everyone chalked it up to alcoholism or mm. you know all these things and then it and then it and then they ultimately after like years and years and years um found out that he had Huntington's Huntington's disease mm. and that was like the root cause of all of this mm-hmm. chaos that ensued in his life after a certain point obviously when he started to, to exhibit symptoms and like and and not being able to know that and understand why. Yeah. And, and I think t- that's the gift of genetic testing, right? Yeah. So I know that that's going to happen to me. Um, so when I start to show symptoms, my husband's going to know, Oh, oh, oh maybe this mm. is the Huntington starting. And, and then we can find the help that we need to help mm. me get through those things. Cause there are ways of coping with those things. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't understand, like if you don't understand why something's happening or have some, even half explanation for why something is happening, then that is, that is going to sow discord. Like it's going to be, it's going to be infinitely more challenging for everybody involved, you know, mm-hmm. not, not just you, but your family and, um, you know, your daughter and, and everybody mm-hmm. involved. Yeah. Aaron, you mentioned your daughter. Um, I'm curious about the, uh, decision to become a mom and how that played out. So I, I thought when I was going through genetic testing, if I tested gene positive, I just wouldn't have kids. But I just always grew up knowing that I was meant to be a mom. So we decided to continue trying to have kids naturally anyway. And we just didn't tell my family that we were doing that. And I think a part of the reason we made that decision was because if I wasn't accepting of my baby who might have Huntington's disease, then how could I be accepting of myself Mm. as a person with it? Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately for us, uh, we couldn't get pregnant. And we even went through fertility treatments. We did in vitro fertilization. And as a part of that process, you can do genetic testing on the embryos. So um, on our first round of, uh, in vitro fertilization, actually all of our embryos had Huntington's disease. Wow. Oh my so God. we didn't even get to use any of them. So Jeez. we felt like we didn't even get a chance. So we went through the process again, which as I, I know you've spoken about it on the show before is very intense and emotional and very mm-hmm. expensive. And on our second round, we had only two embryos that were Huntington's disease free, but neither of them resulted in a pregnancy. And it was a very complicated time for me going through all that, trying to figure out how I felt about HD, how I felt about my kids having HD. Like I I had all this guilt just weighing on me and I was just trying to control the situation. And I didn't know if I could parent a kid who I I had knownly given the gene to. Like Mm -hmm. I I didn't know if I could get over that guilt. 
Uh, it was a huge fear of mine. Um, in the end, we uh, ended up adopting our daughter, which has has been amazing. It's just really nice to know that I don't have to worry about passing on HD to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so that's been really great. I'm so I'm so happy for you and in, in that that you ended up adopting my my. I, I have done IVF with my wife, um, mm-hmm. and my and my wife's sister um, um, has adopted um, and ha- has two boys through adoption. And um, I I I f- I very much feel for you in the process of IVF. It's it is it is as he- it is as easy, heavy as right? it is. It's really easy. It's as heavy as it gets to begin with. Um, yeah. Notwithstanding that the, yeah. that extra layer. Um, of yeah. Huntington's disease and um, and having to deal with that on top of it, so I, I very much I very much see you where um, uh, in that in that tough time. That's a that's a lot to that's a lot. Mm-hmm. What what kind of conversations have you had with your husband about what life might look like once you start to exhibit symptoms? Um, <laughs> well, we haven't had any. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. So I, I mean, I guess so. Then let me rephrase that question. Have you thought about the conversations that you would like to have with your husband about what life will look like when you start to exhibit symptoms? And by that, I mean, like, like, you know, what is, what, what are your hopes? What's the plan that you would like to see happen um, in terms of who is there to care for you? I mean, in this, you know, your, your personal experience right now, it seems that you, you play a bit of a role in, in, in giving care for your father, like who do you want to be there to care for you? Do you want your husband to be to be to actively involved to t- take part in that, or would you rather keep him separate from that in the hopes of like separating partner from caregiver? You know, that's a big conversation we've had on the podcast a lot, where it's like when when your partner becomes your caregiver, a lot of lines are blurred, and it, and it can maybe be take a toll on the relationship. So, like, mm-hmm. what kinds of things have you thought about in terms of? a plan going forward once those symptoms start to, to show. The only way I've thought about it in the future is sort of in relation to my daughter and teaching her the skills now that she needs in, to learn about how to deal with me and mm-hmm. um, also teaching her the skills of how to deal with herself emotionally um, because she will be involved in caregiving in, in some way, probably, and it's important for her to be able to know when to take a step back or when to know when something is too much for her. I haven't spoken specifically to my husband about it, which now that we're talking about, it seems kind of weird because <laughs> I'm a planner. Uh, but in my head, I, I'm like, I just need to save enough money so that I can live in a retirement home. And if I get to be too annoying, he can have a room on the other side of the retirement home and I'll be over here so that we could see each other in day, during the day and do things. But then he could get away from me at nighttime if he needs to. Like that's mm. probably the extent of, of my thought process on that there. And have you had any conversation? Like, I mean, I guess not conversations because you, you haven't, but have you had it? Like, what are your thoughts when it comes to, um, I guess it's a two-part question. What are your thoughts and what is the sort of landscape surrounding MAID when it, when it relates to Huntington's disease, at least here in Canada, as far as we know? I'm not 100% sure. I'm not sort of up on all of the MAID mm-hmm. legislation. Is that, is that something, is, is MAID something that you have thought about or like, or is it something that like has been a part of the conversation with your father? 
for example? Uh, no, it has never been a part of the conversation with my dad. And it's not really something that I've thought about for myself, because mm -hmm. even though uh, my dad can't really do too much anymore, I don't think he has a horrible life. Like he's, he's a pretty happy guy. He lives in a retirement home. The people really love him there. He, he's like very social. Uh, I wouldn't say he's active, but like the extent of his day is going down every day for meals and interacting with the people there. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I wouldn't say that he has a bad life or he's unhappy. I would say he's act, he actually seems happier in the last three years than he did in the 10 years previous to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Quality of life is like quality of life is a is, is a. Is a pretty blurry thing, like when you think about it, like we've talked a lot about made on the podcast and talked a lot about like the ways in which, you know, a lot of diseases like rob you of a whole bunch of different things and like. But there are so many, um, there are so like, again, sorry, not to, not, not to constantly, not to constantly quote Peter Tia's book again, but, <clears throat> but there, there, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty big section right at the beginning that kind of like lays out the foundation for the book, which is, which is t talking about, um, Western medicine's obsession with keeping people alive, like at all costs. Um, and, <laughs> and speaking to like the, the obsession with trying to keep people alive when it's like. It's it's in nobody's best interest for them to be alive, mm -hmm. um, uh, very much so, including the the person in question. But that, like, exactly what you said, like your your dad's dealing with a lot, but like his illness isn't the only thing mm. that is defining his quality of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many different aspects to what make up his quality of life, mm -hmm. and his disease is his disease and its symptoms are like one of are are, are only a piece of that puzzle. Yeah, um, it's pretty hard to guess, you know, what somebody else's quality of life is mm -hmm. like too. Especially if, you know, they can only string together three words every you know, few sentences or so. And how people weight different things. You know, something might be weighted something something that you think is quite insignificant in terms of how it how it plays into your quality of life might be the most important yeah. thing to another. Well, yeah, it's no different than like the person who wants to know that they have the HD gene. Versus the person who goes, I, I actually like. I'd rather not. I'd rather. I'd rather cross that bridge once I get to it. It's just two completely different ways of yeah. of viewing what's important and and the ways that they view the values of of their life or the like you know, opposite and completely valid. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Aaron, I wanted to ask about. Uh, um, uh, so, like you said, that you had done the genetic testing, found out that you were gene positive, and then. And but at that point, your dad still didn't know and didn't have any symptoms. So mm -hmm. what was the conversation like when like how did how did he find out that he had Huntington's? And how did so, that work? <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually know that he had, he was actually going through the testing process at the exact same time as me. And he okay. just didn't tell me. <laughs> and he actually went in to get his test results on the exact same day as me. But we no. just didn't know. Whoa. But the geneticist knew, right? So one of us came in the morning and one of us came in the afternoon. So she had us really spread wide apart. And so, so then I'm sitting oh, with yeah. this knowledge. I'm going to have to keep this secret. This is going to be very hard. I really just avoided my parents for a long time. Uh, because I knew I couldn't tell them about me. And I was, I, I was so upset. I, I couldn't walk around without crying. So obviously, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go see them. Mm -hmm. And about two weeks after, um, I, I did see my parents. And that's when they told me that my dad had the Huntington's gene. 
And then I still didn't tell them about me because <clears throat> I didn't want them to know that I'd got tested without, without them knowing. And I didn't know how my dad would react to the knowledge that I actually knew his test results without mm-hmm. him telling me. So I, I waited about a month and then I was like, oh yeah, I went in, I have it too. <laughs> well, what was that conversation like? I honestly don't remember. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's just a lot of parts of my life at that point in time where, you know, you just sort of Lock blank out. out. Yeah. yeah. Sure. It's yeah. because it's been, you know, how long has it been like 10 years since? Uh, since so, uh, it's, it's been like 17 years. Okay. So, oh, wow. so what has your transformation? That makes sense why it took eight months for you to get your genetic results. <laughs> Because today, that's like oh, right. you just do oh I see. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, different. I didn't know what you were talking about. No, yeah, right, right. It's not totally like tw- it's not it's not twenty three and me. It's you like, can't just mail it in and find out. Right. You yeah, have yeah, to yeah. go through an entire process, like a psych evaluation, and go through this whole process with the genetic clinic and submit your blood, and then it, it goes out. When it goes out for testing, it takes four to six weeks to come back from the lab. What's the psych evaluation for? Just to like make sure. Yeah, that they're just making sure the that news, you're, you're not going to. You're not gonna, yeah, right. You're not yeah. gonna like kill yourself yeah. or something. Yeah, so, just make sure you thought of thought everything through. Right. Do you, do you um uh, I know it was a long time ago, but do you recall the types of questions or 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 sort of what the conversation was like in that that type of um psych evaluation? Yeah, I mean it's different depending on every country, right? But I, I just remember it being more as kind of like a little therapy session. Right. discussing discussing your risk and just uh, like making sure i was educated on on the risk and and things like that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I, i'm curious what your um how your your sort of emotional um feelings around uh knowing that your gene positive have evolved and changed over the past 17 years uh i would say when i first found out i was consumed with HD and mm-hmm. everything I saw reminded me of HD. You know, if I saw, like if I saw an old person, it would remind me that I was going to get HD. If somebody's hand had a little tremor, I would just see that and I would have to rush to the car and cry. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, just everything was a trigger for me, including seeing my dad for a very, very long time. I really thought that once people knew that I had the gene, they weren't going to want to have a relationship with me. Uh, so I just really didn't tell a lot of people because I thought as soon as I tell you, you're going to up and leave and then I'm going to be unloved and alone for the rest of my life. I thought I would never make a new friend again. And I just had to keep the friends that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess um, the biggest transformation is that I've learned to uh, uh, be more um like have more gratitude towards people, I guess you could say, mm. or, or, or trust in them more that they're not just going to up and leave. And that if people do, then that's okay. That's on them. And that there will be other people in my life that are going to love and care for me. And when I am sick, the person who's going to be caring for me might not even be anybody that I've met right now. Mm. Are right? you, are you, are you still, um, do you still experience those those triggers when you see things that remind you of of what um, could potentially be in store for you in the future? I, I would say I don't see them out in everyday life. <laughs> I see them more with my dad or when I'm meeting other people from the HD community at conferences and stuff like that. Uh, I would I would say my biggest trigger for me is my dad. 
And it's really difficult being a caregiver, even though I'm not here doing the daily care. I do everything from his banking to making sure he has all his supplies to getting him to doctor's appointments. And uh, he lives in a retirement home. So when they call and need something for me, just getting that phone call is a trigger. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that sets me into a panic and I have to do whatever they want me to do immediately because I can't let it loom over my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it, it, it will re- really bring me down. Um, it, before in the beginning, when I was first tested, when I saw my dad, um, you know, I'd be in a depression for a week or two and it was really hard to pull myself Ooh. out of it. I would say now I have better coping mechanisms, um, mm-hmm. things like talking to friends about it or meditating and things like that. When it comes to, um, uh, dating, what, like, how did you overcome the sort of the, I guess the feelings that, you know, you were that nobody was going to want to invest in a relationship with you because of, you know, what was because of your Huntington's disease. I I was already married at the time. So I didn't have to go through that. Remember at the beginning when Brian was like, (laughs) when Brian was like, Hey, like I already know everything here. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to tune out. You said, you said certainly did tune out. You You said relationships. And so I was triggered to think about, um, you know, 17 years ago. He just missed that whole part of the story that when you said that it all came about because (laughs) you were going to, going to have a kid, but having a kid, going to have a kid, probably with some random dude. I haven't met yet, but I'm going to have a kid guys. 50% of people get divorced. So it's possible that, you know, that they, that, that she could have separated and gone ways and you know, that didn't work out. That's a decent save there, Bri. It, um, in in terms of so so we, we my parents got divorced. We, we, I'm just <laughs> fucking. With we you, mentioned dude. that uh, you're an author. You've written. You've written, and and also you um you you're not only an author. You're also a founder of your own um, publisher, right? Yes, Lemonade Press. Lemonade Press. Um, you have two books. One's called All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. The other one, Huntington's Disease: Heroes, inspiring stories of resilience from the HD community. Um, uh, Huntington's disease heroes was published this year, uh, a yep. few months back, mm-hmm. um, in the, in the process of writing these books and, and talking to the people within the HD community, what would you say is like the, one of the bigger things that you've learned, um, in that, in that process of speaking with people that are going through this, like how has it shifted your views surrounding HD in general? I would say before these books, I kind of buried my head in my sand and I didn't really get involved in the community because I was afraid to. Mm. And through working on the two books, I've I've spoken to a lot more people in my life than I've ever met with Huntington's disease before. Mm. And it's really expanded my my view of the world. Like I just feel like I have this big family out there now, even if they're not all in this country. And what I've learned is that everybody in the disease community has gone through something and everybody has some experience that they just really want to share with other people because mm-hmm. they want to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been really lovely to see how much people just really want to help each other. What would you say is the biggest thing that Huntington's disease has taken away from you? Uh, it really took away the future that I thought I had. Like my, my, my mom's mom, my grandmother, she lived till 99 and I was really close to her and I'd go visit with her and sew and knit and sit at the beach with her. And I just really imagined that that would be my future. And it's not, I'm not going to live as long as my mom's mom did. 
Um, so, so I feel that's really what it's taken away from me. Um, but I, I would also say that's given me the impetus to do things with my life and mm. take action instead of just let things be. Yeah. My, my next question was, what, what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Yeah. Purpose. Definitely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a purpose, uh, doing something <clears throat> to have an impact on other people's lives in a positive way. Um, and doing something with my life that's meaningful. That's the mm. thing that has given me. Well, I mean, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I preface this recording with the fact that I, I was feeling like this conversation was going to be really heavy. And although we, we touched on a lot of like really heavy subject matter, I'm not left feeling the way that I anticipated I probably would have. Um, as is, as is typically the case. Exactly. And that, that's something that we run up against constantly. You know, it's, it's uh, the, just the nature of this podcast. We, we oftentimes talk about things that are really intense, really heavy, but coming out on the other end, kind of feeling a, a, a weird sense of I don't know, expansion, I, I guess is the only, really the only way I can like put it. And um, I, I just, I, I commend you for coming on the show to talk about this thing that has um, been such a massive part of your life for the last 17 years now. Um, and if people listening um, are interested, how can they find the book? You know, perhaps Huntington's is something that's close, hitting close to home to a listener. How can they find the work that you do? How can they find the books? Yep, the books are on Amazon worldwide. Um, and they can find me. I'm on social media or I have a website, AaronPatterson.com as well. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for taking time in your schedule to chat with us. This has been uh, a real, real treat. I, I, I really appreciate being on the show and all of the work that you guys do. And I think I, I always wanted to have a positive attitude about my disease. Mm-hmm. And when I was first starting to talk about it back in 2017, 2018, there weren't a lot of people out there who were speaking about things in a good way. Mm. And your podcast is one of the first places I found that. So that's why I fell in love with your podcast. And I'm really grateful for everything that you guys do for, for everybody out there. It, that, it really makes a difference and means a lot. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, hearing you say that means a lot. And, and I'm I, again, I'm really, really like elated that we were able to have you on the show to have this discussion after, after all these years. <laughs> again, thank thanks so for being on again. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.